When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Single Tracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Simon Lawton. Simon is the founder of Fluid Ride, which is a world-class mountain bike instructional school that offers both online courses and in-person clinics around the world. We first spoke with Simon on the podcast in the summer of 2019, and it was a lot of fun. So we're stoked to have you back. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to be back. Right on. Let's start with with the question about how business has been for 2020. You know, an important part of what you do, obviously, is putting on mountain bike skills, classes, and clinics. So how have you adapted your business during COVID-19? You know, I think everybody's been for a pretty wild ride uh, over the last uh, eight months or so, and, and uh, I'm not immune to that either. And so obviously, we had the shutdown, which was a big deal. Um, and during the, during the shutdown, we also do tours. And we had a tour scheduled to Finale Liguri in Italy. And obviously, Italy was hit the hardest. So yeah. that, that was the first thing was, uh, was the cancellation of that tour. And then with the shutdown, you know, I had just come back from Mexico. I'd been back only a couple of weeks. We'd been doing clinics for two weeks. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was living in a pretty small town in Mexico where I am now. And I have hadn't really even heard of COVID and I got home to America and everybody's like COVID, COVID, COVID. I'm like, well, what's this? And two weeks later, my business, my business was closed and I thought, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And that's, that's when I pivoted to working really hard on the online school. And um, the timing of that actually worked out really well. The school was still small and it wasn't really able to kind of fill the void financially, mm-hmm. um, you know, for our in-person classes. But Linnea Rook, who has since become our COO, had just started volunteering to help me with social media. And because she was stuck at home, she was putting in about 40 hours a week after her normal job every night. Wow. Just to help me with the online school. Um, and she has become you know, a really, really big part of my business since then. So we basically pivoted by pushing our online school as hard as we could. And we made a huge amount of progress with the school, but it still wasn't really enough to fill that financial void. And then, you know, we heard that things were going to open up in mid June. So we were closed in, uh, I think mid April, all of May, and then until mid June. And so, you know, we kind of started up with a kind of a conservative schedule in in mid June thinking, you know, like, are people going to come out to the park? Mm -hmm what's this going to be like? And oh my gosh, we got run over by business. We got, we did, I think 240% of our normal business of in-person instruction, including the shutdown time. Wow. So what we really saw, and I think a lot of other people can attest to this is just the growth of the sport. I mean, there are no bikes left available. Our, our, uh, more introductory classes were selling five to one over what they normally sell. So, 
it was it was incredible. I mean, we went from thinking, you know, okay, how how are we going to survive this thing to oh my god, how are we going to survive this thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, were people concerned though? I mean, like, were people kind of they wanted to sign up, but were they worried about like sort of precautions that were in place or anything? Or or these like kind of the gung ho people who are like, I'm going to get out there and do this. You know, it was a combination of the two types of people. I mean, I think it was really just kind of everybody had been inside so long and they were mm-hmm. looking for a way to get outside. And it was kind of just before the news that being outside was a lot safer than being inside. It was kind of right around the time where that was kind of becoming the emerging science. And so that was a good thing. We, we you know, we put our policies online of, you know, we limited the size of our classes and we set out cones where everybody would stand during the talking portions of class and then... Mm-hmm. We really monitored the way people went through our skill drill zones and, and through the trails and that sort of thing to make sure that there was spacing. And, you know, we taught, I don't know how many people, we taught thousands or thousands of people over the summer, and we never had any problems that I know of with COVID. So, um, and we had no complaints about from anybody saying, like, you know, your policies didn't seem to work or, you know, people were too close. Um, everybody was really respectful and kept their distance. Um, you know, some people wore masks, some people didn't. Um, because we were able to keep quite a bit of distance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would say, I would say if anything, it was like therapy for people. Like people weren't just excited to learn to ride bikes. They were like, oh my gosh, I'm outside. I'm, ble- I'm breathing fresh air. I'm learning something. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of like, it was kind of like a, a, almost this additional outlet for people that was just such a gift for us to be able to give and to watch it. And like to just to be there with the group was, I remember saying to the first group, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not in my bedroom anymore because I, I live alone, <laughs> you know? I'm like, here I am with this group of people who are excited to learn. So for me, that was really, really exciting. And so we had we had a huge, huge summer. Uh, I think we have six mountain bike instructors now. Uh, so we have riders out, you know, teaching private classes, people assisting my classes, other people teaching classes. Um, so we've, we've really expanded our in-person instruction. We even now have uh, an instructor in Los Angeles and uh, a couple coming on in, in uh Jackson Hole, Wyoming area. So we've got we've got uh, some good expansion underway in terms of the in-person instruction. And the shutdown period really allowed us to make a lot of headway on our online school. And even though it didn't result immediately in a lot of subscriptions, now that our main teaching season is over, we're way further ahead with the school. And now our subscriptions are really taking off and we've got a lot of exciting uh, stuff happening there. Along the way, along the way through summer, um, another thing that allowed us to be so effective with our instruction was that we we weren't in the French Alps for a month like we usually are in August. So it was my first first year not operating my tours in Chamonix, and uh, instead of uh, being in uh, beautiful green Chamonix, we got hit by a bunch of smoke from here on the west coast. So it was kind of like one thing after another, but mm-hmm. it was really yeah. actually, while it was challenging. It, it was actually a really, I mean, I hate to say this, I know a lot of people suffered, but it was, it was a really rewarding year for us. You know, it really was because we just kept trying and we kept pushing and we kept pivoting and we kept just doing our best in it. And the results just kept coming back in a really positive way for us. So that was, yeah, it was, it was cool. I think it's going to make everything seem easier in the future. That's my hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's surprising, but I guess also not surprising. I mean, I think a lot of us in the bike world, kind of, you know, experienced the same thing where initially we were like, oh no, what's going to happen? And then we saw this demand for bikes, but still I am surprised that, you know, in-person 
uh, skills training, you know, was as popular as it was and that people didn't, you know, let that stop them. They weren't afraid to come out and give it a try. So, no, well, nobody was more surprised than me. I'll tell you that I could <laughs> not, but like I was not prepared. I thought, oh, we'll throw a couple classes out there and they, they sold out in minutes. Huh. And I was like, what is going on? And we just kept adding, kept adding. And it didn't matter how many we added, they sold out. You know, it was, it was really it was really astounding and just how excited people were. And the thing that I think that ca- kind of caught me off guard were here were all these people on like garage sale bikes once all the bikes were sold out mm. and they kept coming back to the park and they kept taking classes. They like it. It didn't seem like anybody kind of tried it and didn't like it. It seemed like everybody was just into it. And I, I yeah. really think the sport just like doubled in size. Like I just think we're going to see a permanent massive expanse um, in the sport yeah. from, from COVID. Yeah, one of our contributors noted that, you know, in the past when the bike industry talks about like, you know, how are we going to grow the sport? And we talk about the challenges, you know, like, oh, well, you got to be in shape and, you know, you got to you got to spend a lot of money on equipment. You know, these are the things that are keeping people from riding. But, you know, with with COVID now, it turns out what was really stopping people from biking more was, you know, college football and you know, going out to restaurants and like all the other stuff that suddenly when you're not doing those things, you're like, huh, you know, biking, that's next on my list of things that I want to do. It's a lot of fun and yeah. it may not be the priority for a lot of people, but you know, once the, the things that are priorities go away, biking's up there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I think it is the new priority for a lot of these people. I mean, we had people dusting off bikes they hadn't pulled out of their garage in 20 years, you know? So it was really, um, it was a really cool thing to see, and I think a really healthy thing for a lot of people because, like, like you say, a lot of other people's interests were maybe a little bit more idle. So to get them out in the woods and get them out on bikes, um, get them exercising, I think it was just the perfect thing for people's bodies, but also for their minds after after kind of being forced to sit still. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we talked back in 2019, you were launching Fluid Ride Online. And given the current circumstances, it does seem like the timing was good. So what have you learned over the last year and a half of offering these online skills classes? Well, it's been nothing but learning, I'll be honest, Jeff. I, mean, <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to anything that I do, really. I just, I just literally make stuff up and just do my best, and I'm super passionate about it. Um, I didn't really have any experience with, with online teaching, to be honest. And my initial thought was I, I bought a 70 inch touchscreen monitor and I thought, okay, teach everything you teach in all of your classes. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, had these videos and kind of, you know, this giant screen and I created a studio in my house. And basically I taught all the skills that, that were contained in, in all my classes. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought, okay, this can just sit as a static school and people will pay for it. And it's going to be great. And then I realized, you know, people consume content pretty quickly and <laughs> there, there needs to be something ongoing. And it's not the same as being in a class because you're not getting that direct feedback from me. I mean, the, the information was all there. Um, and so what I learned was that that constant updating of content was really the key. And that's really what we've pivoted to now. Um, one of the one of the biggest things that's helped us, we've, our numbers have grown um, you know, a hundred percent in the last couple of months. And that's maybe partly in due to this, due to the season and some of the shutdowns in the U S. Uh, but it, a lot of it is due to some other teaching modalities we brought in. We have a, a new series called practice like a pro, which is actually our COO, Linnea Rook, who is a regional pro enduro rider and downhill rider. It's me teaching her 
and her going through the process of learning with two goals in mind, one to break her record down a, a, a quite a well-known track in our area called Predator, where she, I think she has the second fastest time behind Joe Kendner. Mm. And her other goal is to ride this black diamond jump run um, called Semper Derticus at um, Duty Hill Park with style. She wants to actually be able to throw, throw she wants to be able to throw whips and all that, yeah. that kind of stuff. And so we've had a weekly episode. Um, we've been pushing out like a four or five minute episode every week on YouTube and then creating content for those people who, you know, maybe are sitting at home and don't have money and we want to make sure that they're included. They're not really teasers. They're just kind of like mini, mini episodes. And then we have the full episodes available on Fluid Ride Online. It's been fascinating. Like we, when we first launched it, uh, a few months ago, we'd go to the park and so many people had their phones out and they were practicing in all the same places that she was practicing. And they were so inspired. I think it really kind of worked well because, um, you know, most women would love to ride like her. Most men would love to ride like her. Um, so uh, I think it appeals to a lot of people. It seems more attainable to watch her riding than to maybe watch like a top pro riding where you're like, yeah, well, that's great for you. You're top pro. You know? right. um, so and to see her before and afters were really incredible. Um, we have a lot of stuff coming up. We've, we've worked with um, uh, Portia Murdoch, who was the 2018 National Enduro Champion, and uh, we just made a, an hour-long episode um, that uh, is re it's really incredible before and afters from that. So some of the more practical stuff of seeing like how, not just what I teach, but how I teach it and how I actually go back and forth with the student and, and what the corrections are that we make and then how, basically how effective it is because the before and afters are, are absolutely incredible mm -hmm. um, as we're doing these. And so now we're adding in more of these kinds of things. Um, we're doing a beginner series where we're starting with two, uh, two ladies who are absolute beginner riders down here in Mexico. And we also have one with uh, a series that we've already, I think we've done five or six episodes that haven't been launched yet with two young ladies who want to ride the World Cup. So there's the 13-year-old girl who wants to be the U.S. national downhill champion, and then her 15-year-old sister uh, wants to qualify for junior World Cups this year, this next year. And um, so we've been working with them, and they're both absolutely astounding riders. Um, and the amount they were able to learn in the first five sessions was, was really cool. So what we're trying to really do is, you know, bring in beginners, bring in people of different ages. Um, I'm doing a series with a, a kid who's eight years old, um, really great writer. So I'm going to follow him from age eight to age nine. So kind of trying to make something for everybody in the family. You know, if you tune in, maybe you're a beginner and there's going to be something for you to like really connect with. So we tried to bring a little bit of like the entertainment value in rather than just kind of like technical knowledge, which is what I'm, I, I tend to be, I, I think I'm a fun teacher in person, but like being in front of a screen, it comes across a little bit like as technical knowledge. And so actually having somebody there to teach has been really, really cool. And then one of the big things we're doing right now, and Linnea is working super hard on this is we're about to launch classes in association with each of our content pieces. So say for instance, there's a how to write berm turns. Mm -hmm. Rather than just watching the 10-minute video or 20-minute video on how to ride berm turns, it puts you through a whole class, and it's actually got like a progress bar where it's like monitoring your progress. And then at the end, you can there's some, on, on a lot of them, there's an at-home drill you can do to kind of practice the movements. It depends on, on what the particular skill is. And then we also have on-trail ones. And so we'll have a, like a video or um, GIFs or uh, 
photos with arrows and that sort of thing showing what you should look like and then you can put your own image on screen and compare yourself and you know you can keep practicing that until you get it as perfect as you can and if you don't get it to where you like it you'll be able to enlist our help at, uh, with remote instruction and right now we actually have a really cool special that's been driving a lot of people our way which is a $99 one year um, annual subscription which comes with one video feedback session so people send me a video I mark up the, the video give them feedback and send it back to them. And so that's something we're going to, we're starting to create now is this opportunity um, starting in January to buy packages of, of feedback videos. So, so for, for the people who don't live near me and take my classes, they can get feedback for the people who do live near me and do take classes. They'll be able to get, you know, a quick check-in uh, for less money than taking a class. So yeah. those are the kind of, those are kind of the things we have going on right now that are really exciting. And the growth we're seeing is incredible. And the feedback is absolutely incredible. And one of my favorite things is we just bought like a new way of, I don't know, what is this? Some sort of plug-in. And when you click on it, you can see them, you know, the maps from, you can see the map all over the world and all the different flags. And just to, just to see kind of like, how many people all around the world are taking advantage of what we're, what, what we're creating and being able to share that worldwide is, is really, really cool. And for me, like my goal has always been to improve as many people's lives as possible, regardless of what I'm doing, whether it's mountain biking or teaching yoga or teaching the other things that I teach. And, you know, within that, I, w I don't want to exclude people just because of money. So we have, you know, we have our free stuff on YouTube, um, you know, for, I don't know, about nine bucks a month, you, you know, buying an annual, you can, you can be on our online channel. You know, if you have a little more money, you can do one of our group classes in person, if you have a little more money, you can do private instruction or come on one of our tours. So there's, you know, really the hope is that there's something for everybody to help them ride more safely and to help them ride better and to just enjoy the sport more. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool to hear that, you know, you've found some new ways to make it a little bit more interactive, I guess you would say, like mm -hmm. being able to send in video for feedback. And then I love the idea of the progress bar as well. Cause like you're saying, you know, this isn't Netflix. This isn't like you sign up and you watch the videos and then, you know, you watch them all, you binge watch. And then at the end, you're an awesome writer. Like you really have to take the time, like slow it down, you know, focus on one skill, and, you know, get, get kind of the basics, get an understanding of what you're trying to do. And then you have to go out and practice it. And that's really where the time is. The time is not spent in front of your screen. It's, you know, you're only going to progress if you're out there doing it. That's absolutely true. I mean, Linneo, you know, who's, who's runs the company and is a regular student of mine, she decided last winter that uh, during COVID that she was going to learn to ride wheelies. And uh, she can crank out a wheelie for about a half a mile probably now. Wow. Yeah. And she said it took her six months and she worked every day. And so when people come up to her and say, Hey, can you show me how to wheelie? And she's like, I can show you the basics <laughs> and then you can go and work like one or two hours a day for six months. If you want to, if you want to ride a wheelie. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube and a lot of stuff online where it's like, you know, learn to manual in five minutes, you know, and it's kind of like, well, you could learn maybe some of the techniques about it in five minutes, but to your point, Jeff, yeah, it takes a lot of practice and that that's the part that's really up to the rider. And that's the part, you know, that's the fun part, actually, because I mean, you're riding a bike, you know, but you can get good information online, but then you, you definitely need to go out and uh, give it a try more than once. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned, too, that, you know, there's a lot of new riders that are out there and that you're kind of trying to create content for people who are, are like 
brand new. I mean, I imagine before kind of with your in-person classes and even the people who had signed up for the online version, these are people who have been mountain biking for a while and they, you know, get to the point where they say, well, you know, I want to, I want to go to the next level or whatever. So how have you adapted? Like, what are the types of skills that someone who like, maybe they, they just got their first mountain bike, you know, this summer, what, what are the things that you start with, with them? So we're, we're about to start filming down here in Mexico. We're about to start filming this beginner series and it's all going to, uh, the, or at least the first number of episodes are just filmed in the town square in, in the small town I live in, in Todos Santos and just flat pavement. Like what is a dropper post? How does a dropper post work? Mm-hmm. Which brake is your front brake? Which brake is, brake is your back brake? How do you shift a bike? How do you do basic climbing? You know, so it's going to be really, uh, you know, how do you, how do you set up the height of your seat post given that you have a dropper post? So these riders, the two riders I've chosen, have never ridden before, and I haven't taught them anything leading up to this, and and we're going to film it in a couple of weeks. And they're both really, really excited. They keep saying, come on, teach me a little bit. It's like, nope, you got to show up blind. I mean, I I want a true beginner here, so... They're both really good sports and they're both really athletic, so I think they'll they'll pick it up. But it's going to be all brand new to them, and that, that that's the whole idea. Because what's happening right now is, if you're lucky enough to be able to find a bike, you know, it gets shipped to your house. A lot of times, if you're ordering it direct, and you're like, okay, what is all this stuff, and how do I use it? It's a little intimidating. So we're, we, you're totally right. Like we're starting at a, like our beginner point has changed to 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 brand new beginner. And I think that's really important right now because we want to make sure that people who are just picking up a bike or just dusting off a 20 year old bike kind of go, okay, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the front brake. That's the back brake. I mean, there's some, some pretty simple things that turn out to be pretty important, especially with powerful brakes these days. Yeah. What about for beginners too? What about the soft skills like trail etiquette? You know, obviously biking is not the only, only thing that's booming right now. I mean, around where I live, dog walking (laughs) seems to be more popular than ever and hiking and, you know, trail running. And, you know, I mean, the trails are, are packed with people and not just bikers. So does that fit in with your instructional material at all? Like these soft skills and, and if not, like, where do people learn that stuff? You know, that's a really good question. Um, it, It does. It absolutely does fit in. So I'm lucky enough to teach in a park where we have mostly one way trails and that sort of thing. The the etiquette that I teach there initially is, that on green and blue trails, you always yield to the slower rider. And then on black diamond trails, if you, you know, just getting good enough to get onto one and you hear a rider coming up behind you, if you can safely get off the trail, you should, because they might need the speed to clear an upcoming jump or Mm -hmm. to do something, you know, that's coming up. And so that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that, um, that you, like a lot of beginners will feel like they're in somebody's way on a green trail. Like they'll say, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm like, Hey, this is your trail. It's totally fine. Take, <laughs> yeah. take your time, you know? And like, so we teach all of the people within the class to understand that look, look we're going to be on these trails today. If you come up on, you know, on somebody's slower, don't be frustrated and just, you know, give them some positive, you know, some positive feedback. And just by hearing you, they'll probably pull over and let you by. <laughs> you yeah. yep. um, so that's, that's one thing um, in terms of etiquette. Like, yeah, the other thing is where we do have shared trails is just understand, like letting people know that it's really important as mountain bikers that we take the high road, that we're the ones who stop for the hikers, that if the dog starts to follow you, that you stop and make sure it reconnects with, with its owner, that we are the stewards and the ambassadors and that we always are the ones setting a good example. So that's really important. And then it, it actually goes a little further than that when we start to travel. So 
the first night, you know, that, that people come into our, like our trips um, in Chamonix or, you know, or the trips we're going to be having here in Mexico or wherever is just to kind of ed- educate them on the etiquette of the area and you know, the way you treat the people and the things you do and don't do and the things that we take for granted in America that are different in other places. Like, for example, um, in Europe, uh, Europeans are, are, are not super noisy at the dinner table and you might get a a group of you know fifteen very excited uh, Americans sitting at, at the dinner table having a few cocktails after a really epic day of riding, and suddenly it's a pretty raucous uh, environment. The rest of the restaurant is just going, "Oh my gosh, what's going on over there?" So, so sometimes we have to have a little talk with people and just say, "Like, hey, you know, it's totally cool to be excited, but like, just try to keep your voices down and notice that it is different here in this country. Like, different people behave differently in different countries, and so I think that that's." It's really important when you go to new places to respect people's trails, to respect the, the etiquette on the trails, but also to respect the etiquette of the lifestyle, you know, in the location you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess trails too. I mean, you kind of touched on that. Um, you know, a big part of it is the sort of person to person interactions that we experience on the trails, but even, you know, taking care of the trails themselves, you know, not, not skidding and all the stuff that like we take for granted and think like, Oh, of course, you know, we know how to, how to do that. But I I imagine people don't know that stuff. That brings up a great point. So like when I teach jumping, one of the first things I teach is I show them where the lip of the jump is. And I say like, if you're looking at a jump, you never stand on this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If you're looking at this berm turn, you don't stand on top of the berm. Like, like realize that like, like tons and tons of hours of work went into all of this, and these are works of art. And so they're not just like things that just happen to be out here. They're things that people have created and taken great, great pain to, to create. And especially like, you know, we had a really dry summer. You know, when the summer months come, you have to be even more careful about the way you treat the trails. If you, if you, you, know, you step on the top of a jump or you step on the top of a berm, you might just completely destroy it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I think that that's really important uh, as well is to kind of educate people as to the etiquette around the builders. Like if you see a builder, don't be like, Oh, Hey crap, this trail's closed. And you're yelling at the builder. It's like, Hey, thanks for, thanks for working on the trail. You know, like <laughs> don't be angry because your trail's closed because there's a builder making it better for you. Be thankful. Ask if you can help, Right. you know, if you have time and if you don't have time, just, just, please say thank you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I happen to know a lot of friends, a lot of non mountain bike friends who, you know, maybe they used to bike, they have like an old bike sitting in the garage that's gathering dust and, and they're the ones who are getting back into the sport and getting back out there. Do you think certain mountain bike skills get rusty if you don't use them or, or is there truth to that saying, you know, that it's just like riding a bike, like you never forget. You know, the, the balance part is just like riding a bike. Like, I think you get back on your bike and you're like, oh, hey, look, I'm riding a bike again. Cool. Yeah, I can still do um, it. But, exactly. But uh, there are skills that get rusty really, really quickly. And even with the world's top riders, so even with the pros that, who I teach, you know, I talk a lot in my teachings about foot dominance. You know, really mm-hmm. people turn better in one direction and they turn in the other direction. And even with somebody, you know, at the pro level, even at the high, high top pro level, they'll come and I'll, I'll clean up their, like, let's say their front foot turn, which you can learn more about on, on uh, our YouTube channel at fluid ride mountain bike instruction or on our on fluid ride online. Like if you're working on like their, their front foot turn and then all of a sudden they come back and like their foot dominance is taken over and they're making both, 
they're turning in both directions with their back foot. Like they're just turning. Most commonly, people will be right foot dominant, and they'll tend to turn right, right and left off their right foot, which is incorrect. And so, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I would say that comes back to haunt people is like, oh, I'm doing that again, you know. And I get really high level riders who come back to me consistently for a check in and for some video analysis just to see that that what they're doing is correct because our bodies own biases are so hard to change. They're habitual, right? Mm-hmm. That's what habits are. The other thing that, that I think is is something, you know, maybe not so much for the highest level riders, but for the general population is this psychological tendency to want to move rear, rearward on the bicycle. And almost everything we teach is about moving forward into the terrain. So moving forward from the kneecaps into terrain. And it's really dangerous to move rearward on the bike in general. Like, you might see a bike go down a steep descent with a good rider. It might look like the rider got back, but really the bike moved forward. And it's a really important distinction. And so what we see a lot with people is they're like, hey, man, I took a class with you and I was feeling so good. And like, I don't know what's wrong with my riding. And they come out and they're either like really stiff, which can pull you forward when the, when the bike wants to roll down something, or they're generally, they're just like an inch or two too far back. You really want to stand centered over the bottom bracket in general. And even if you think about like a bike on a really steep descent, when it rolls down a steep descent and the saddle moves out in front of you, it doesn't mean you've moved behind the saddle. It means, means the saddle's moved in front of you. And if you actually look at the rider, what you'll notice is that the rider will be still be stacked up over the bottom bracket. It's just that the saddle's now moved to a different position relative to the rider. Hmm. Um, so a lot of people will premeditatively move rearward out of fear. And that's probably like, you know, if you watch Friday Fails or something like that on Pink Bike, it's 80% <laughs> people moving back too, too much too soon or their brain, their brain saying, Oh, be careful, get back. Right. Which, and, and I hear like parents coaching their kids all the time, like just get your butt back, just get your butt back. <laughs> and it's like, it's like the absolute opposite of what you want to do on a bike. I mean, there are moments where like off the edge of a drop where you shift your hips rearward and things like that. There are moments where the saddle moves out in front of you and it looks like your butt's back but we're not really pushing the bike out in front of us. We're not really pushing our butt back. Mm-hmm. We're staying center over our own legs for the bottom bracket, which is the control mechanism of the bicycle. So I would say that those are the two things, like the, like the foot dominance for cornering and then this desire to, to uh, get back. Our little mantra that we use is move forward and relax. And moving forward means move forward at the knees. And that just reminds you to move forward toward like a rock guard and the roots or mm-hmm. things like that rather than moving backward. And then the relax is relaxing the upper body. Because if your upper body's tense and you're trying to hang on really tight, the bike can't jockey. I mean, think about it like a horse, right? Like you want to stay over the stirrups. Mm-hmm. That's your move forward. So your knees are over your toes. And you want to relax because you need to let the reins move back and forth and let the horse run. So it's very similar on a bike. If you try to hang on too tight, you're going to do everything the bike does. Mm-hmm. If you get back, if you get back too far, you're going to your arms are going to become fully extended and at some point you're going to be pulled forward and that's going to scare you and it's going to both make you get back more and tense up more. So it's this kind of like, you know, this uh, self-fulfilling thing that just gets worse and worse and worse. And then you come back to a class and you're like, Oh, that's what I was doing. Yeah. I was totally getting back and I was getting tense. And because I was getting back, I was getting tense and because I was tense. I was getting back. And, <laughs> you know, it's just this loop and your riding just gets worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon you just say, Oh, I'm just not a good rider. And really the adjustment is so quick and so simple with people. It's really cool to watch people have that kind of aha moment of like, wow, that works. That just moving forward to the knees. We have a ton of stuff again, you know, on our YouTube channel, the fluid ride mountain bike instruction 
and, and on food right online we have you know even more about all that kind of stuff yeah i remember that was one of the the things i took away from our first conversation was just yeah not that that reaction to get back on the bike when you're doing something steep or you're coming into something technical and it's one of those things that i continue to work on and have to tell myself and i i almost wonder if for me personally it's you know just because i've been riding for a long time like way before dropper posts and that was kind of like to get to get in the right position you kind of had to go like up and over your seat post and so you know I, i've just got used to that being so far back and now it's like wait i have all this room like i can get exactly where i need to be without you know over exaggerating that yeah in your in your introduction to your question, you know, you actually brought that up, and I should have addressed it, and I will now. Which is, you said, you know, you've got your friends dusting off their bikes out of their garage after twenty years. Okay, so those bikes have, you know, if you look where your hands are in relation to the to the front axle, they're in front of the front axle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. our hands yeah, long these stems. Days are, are long stems, steep head angles. So on bikes like that. You, we just had to get our butt pack and kind of hope for the best. They just weren't really very well designed. And so when I, when we do have people come to classes on those bicycles, we explain to them that there are instances where they can move forward a little bit in gentle terrain. Mm -hmm. But like when they go and get steep, if they really want to hurl themselves down something on a 25-year-old bike, then they just need to get their butt pack, you know. <laughs> and so that that advice was not incorrect. Yeah. You know, 25 years ago, that advice is incorrect now on a modern bicycle. And I would say that, you know, any bicycle made in the last 10 years or so, the newer uh, techniques apply um, more so. And, and so, yeah, for, for sure, Jeff, like there is there is some truth to that for those of us who've been riding a long, long time. And maybe we habituated ourselves to certain movements, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. on bicycles that were made in 1986. You know? <laughs> right. Um, it, take, it takes a little bit of updating, and, and really there is a lot of room on modern bikes to move, um, and there really is a nice sweet spot, uh, and it's much easier to maintain your space up in the bottom bracket. And then just the idea of how further, how much further behind um, the, the front axle your hands are is really interesting when you think about it. Like if you think about being on flat ground on an old cross-country bike, your hands are in front of the front axle. So you go off the curb and you almost feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go over the handlebars, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now our hands are like, on the, like a modern enduro bike are four or five inches behind the front axle. So you have to get on a pretty steep pitch before your hands even line up with the axle, let alone get in front of the front axle. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the most things, what's one of the biggest things that I think anyway as a coach that has become, that, that is a stabilizing force of, of, of the layout of modern bicycle. I would say, I mean, suspensions come away a long way, brakes have come a long way, like all that stuff. But really, angles and lengths and hmm. all the engineering that's gone into bikes is really what's changed them the most. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah, uh, that it's all about the geometry now, too. I mean, people, a lot of us talk about that, like, oh, bikes are so great right now. And, yeah, it's, a lot of it is just they're easier to ride. I mean, they let us do more things and go faster and, you know, ride more technical terrain. And, and a lot of it does, like you said, come down to the, the geometry of them. So you recently made a move to spend half the year in Baja, Mexico. So you kind of mentioned this, but where are you exactly and, and what led you to make that move? Oh, man. I mean, Todos Santos, and I absolutely love it. So Todos Santos is about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas. 
so Cabo is on the very southern tip of Baja. So mm-hmm. I'm about an hour from the southern tip of Baja and, and about a million miles away from Cabo at the same time, even though it's an hour away because I live in a small town of about 7,000 people, maybe, I'm just guessing here, but maybe 1,000 expats and oh, wow. um, you know, 6,000 Mexican nationals. And um, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's what's called the Pueblo Magico. So it's kind of like one of the historic towns. It still has its roots firmly intact. It's a beautiful little town with a little town, you know, typical Mexican town square, a small downtown. I live right downtown on Main Street. Um, Mm. Great beaches. Like, it's so, the beaches are so empty and so beautiful. Like, I didn't know anything like this possibly existed anywhere. You know I mean? (laughs) I'll go to the beach some days and walk for miles and not see anybody. Wow. I mean, it's it's incredible. But at the same time, you can go downtown and listen to live music. And it's not like a crazy party scene but you know there's always something going on in town um, there are all these surprising little courtyards back at, once you get get to know town mm-hmm. um, these little courtyards you kind of go into a door and go in a back corridor and all of a sudden you pop into a, an outdoor courtyard inside a building uh, you know with a band playing and people dancing and um, it's it's really lively and uh, really a surprising little town and so I came down here, so I was historically for five years or so living in Thailand on a small island where I met my dog, and uh, yeah, and I was teaching a little bit. Well, I was mostly a student of free diving, but I started teaching uh, breath hold diving at the end, and I really liked it there, but it was very foreign. It was very far from home, and I couldn't take my dog. Even though my dog was from Thailand, I couldn't take her back there with me uh, because it's just there's just so many like wild dogs around, and uh, so... I've been searching for a place in America, you know, I was driving around SoCal and Arizona. I'm like, well, I gotta find a winter home. You know, it's not necessarily for teaching. It's just that I, I did the ski thing for many, many years and I'm just kind of like, I'm, I'm just ready for sunshine, you know? And, uh, so I started driving South and I had my dog with me and I was like, Hey, you can go to Mexico, you know? So we just kept driving and came down. Uh, I went to La Paz first, which is the capital of BCS. So, so, uh, Baja California South basically. So the, which is the southernmost state of Baja. It's the least populous of the 30 or so states in Mexico. Um, so we went to the capital first, and we stayed there for about six weeks. And it's a, it's a big city for down in the biggest city. It's 250,000 people. This is where I, and this is where I ended up here. You know, uh, it, it's one of the largest towns, of, and it's less than 7,000 people. Hmm. So I, I tried La Paz, thinking I'd want to be you know, on the Gulf Coast so I could free dive and do things like that not really a surfer yet, just getting started. And so I thought, well, you know, what, what's the Pacific Coast going to hold for me? Is that really going to be where I want to be? And I drove over to this little town and just immediately met people in the yoga community, rode some of the local trails, and it was just like, this is home. You know, like, this is where I want to live. And so then I started kind of investigating how I could put on tours. And we actually launched a bunch of tours and sold a bunch of spots. And we're all ready to go because, you know, COVID was kind of waning a little bit toward the end of summer mm-hmm. and then um, you know it just hit back hard so we just canceled all our tours and so now I've just been super busy helping dig trails uh, working with um, some of the people from town uh, which has been really cool um, Dave Thompson from Over the Edge uh, Sports has, has been super helpful and kind of like showing me around and showing me the trails he's built I mean, this is kind of his legacy was to make this into a a mountain biking town. He's built some beautiful, flowy kind of green and blue trails. And of course, with my my downhill roots, I'm like, okay, where's the fall line? You know. <laughs> so, 
So he's been helping me find spots and I've been busy digging, which has been wonderful because, I mean, for me, I've been, a, I've been an advocate of the sport, you know, helping to create a colonnade park, which is the first urban mountain bike park in America, and then helping to create Doofy Hill Park. Mm-hmm. But I did, the, I did the political work on those. And I, never, I literally never lifted a shovel because I was so busy in meetings. Yeah. And to be able to come here and have somebody else who's done the political work and they're like, we just need you to lift a shovel. I'm like, perfect. Yeah. I can do that. So I've been getting up at like 4 a.m. and hiking up into the mountains and I've been making some nice black diamond terrain here and um, I'm really excited to share it with people and uh, share it with the town and, and to bring, you know, some, just to bring some, some money into the town more or less, you know, with people who are respectful, you know, or fit and aren't just coming here to party. They're not coming here to, to be in Cabo. They're coming here to ride bikes. And mm-hmm. so trying to make Toto Santos more of of a mountain bike town is kind of like one of my key goals here. Right now we have the Sierra Madre Trail, which is a 10 mile uh, cross country loop. It's got a couple pretty nice descents on it for sure. Just really, really flowy. And there's a very scenic loop called the Old Port Loop, um, which mostly goes through uh, private land, which is going to be developed, but it's open for people to ride through. And um, it's actually open in many areas for building. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. And there's some people from Bellingham who have spent a lot of time I'm not sure the name of the area, but it's out the other end of town by the La Pastora Surf area. And uh, they've uh, built a lot of trails, and that's just starting to be developed now. So I, they, I think they've lost some of the trails that they created. Um, mm. But um, it's definitely growing here. You know, I mean, you've got basically an hour away from here. You go to La Ventana, which is kind of the you know kiteboarding capital of the area. That's it's directly due east um, on the Gulf Coast, mm-hmm. and uh, they have beautiful, flowy trails. Um, yeah, I was actually there earlier this year, riding in La Ventana, um, and rode yeah. a couple of the trail systems there. Yeah, really, really surprising to find that. And you know, for at least some of it, it seemed like you know most of the trail names and signs were in English, and so I, I got the impression that a lot of this trail building and, and mountain biking is being driven by the expat community. Has that been your experience there or are you seeing like more locals actually starting to get involved? You know, absolutely. I would say it's the expat community um, and then locals becoming more involved. Um, you know, Dave Thompson um, has lived in Mexico for at least a decade. I know that. Um, but uh, he's been the one who's kind of been behind the, the big push here, like the Sierra Madre Trail in, in this town. I know there are a group of expats. I can't remember exactly who's building in La Ventana, but I know it's a pretty organized group. As you saw, there's nice signage, and they even kind of like call out some of the names of the foliage. And um, the, tra- the trails are in beautiful shape there. I mean, they, the surprising thing is they're not really dusty like you think they are, yeah, when, yeah. You know, considering there's no rain. And then in Los Barriles, which is a, just a bit south of there, I know it's a different group yet. And then uh, there's also a bike park in San Jose del Cabo, which is the where the Cabo Airport is. There's a little bike park down there. So if you get on trail forts and you just kind of enter Baja, you'll just see southern Baja is chock full of trails, um, some of which are better than others, um, most of which uh, are green or blue if they're descents. And some of the black diamonds like on trail forks are actually climbs. And so... Uh, I've, I've been wanting to make some more fall line stuff. So I've been working on a couple of trails that have some pretty significant, uh, um, vertical to them and, uh, and some pretty technical trail features. So I'm working on some of that stuff right now. And then also working with some landowners up in the Sierra, up in the mountain, 
mountains, like the real mountains, which are bigger. I mean, the mountains, some of the mountains here on the coast are about 1,500 feet or more tall. But then you go, you look inland, 40-minute drive away, and the, the peaks are probably 6,000 feet tall. And yeah. um, there's some fa- families who've owned land out there for generations and have been able to make some, get some introductions out there as well to figure out, you know, the possibility for um, maybe leasing a bit of land you know, because there are roads that go right to the top, but they're all private roads. And those people are looking for ways to make money and, you know, having a trailer to come down through the, through the, the forest, I think could be a pretty sustainable way for them to, to create something, you know, where, where things can be hard to create because there's just not a lot around out there. Yeah. 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 And when I was there, we stayed at a place called Rancho Cacachilas, uh, which is, but again, one of these like privately owned ranches, you know, it's become like a tourism spot and yeah, they've, they've invested a ton in building trails there, you know, using, uh, machines and, and teaching a lot of, you know, the local folks, you know, all the latest in trail building and things. And they've been able to, to build a really amazing network of trails. Um, though again, it is privately owned and, you know, it's not like, it's not like here in the U.S. anyway, where most trails are kind of fair game. I mean, this is, you know, for their guests. and Yeah. I, I think that's one of Christy Walton's places. I'm not positive about that. Yes, it is. It is. Yep. Okay. So, like, you know, again, the, the Walton family has been getting really into mountain biking, which is cool. Um, there's an, <laughs> yeah. there's another, another small town. Um, like, it's a very small town of, like, 100 people. But I think they've got a, a zone out there as well. And, but like you say, those are private zones. I think you have to hire guides to ride through there. Is that correct? Yeah, I think at Rancho Cacachillas, yeah. Yeah, so I've never done that. So what I'm trying to create is just kind of just more like the American model of, of trails that you can find on trail forks, trails that anybody can utilize. And then, you know, like for the tours that I'm putting on down here, I'm trying to enlist the help of as many locals as I can, whether it's for the guiding, the cooking, driving, all that kind of stuff. The same sort of thing we do like when we're in Europe. We don't, we're not the guides in Europe. We, you know, um, we have French guides uh, in France. And we have French and Italian guides when we're in Italy. And uh, we have trips planned to South America where we have a, you know, we have a, a South American guide um, down there who leads it. And so wherever I go, I just like to respect, you know, the people. I'm, it's not like I'm here to take away their, their land and their jobs. I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, like help them use the land in a sustainable way to create jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you think Baja has the potential to become a well-known mountain bike destination? I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of opportunities there already, but, um, do you see it, it becoming more popular with, with mountain bikers? Absolutely. Like, I mean, some of the trails, like just the little ones that I've etched in, I'm like, Okay, I can see this being really popular with a lot of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think some of it was, you know, necessarily done, you know, um, at, at medium rates. Just like you know, most trail builders know, if you if you build trails that are flatter, they take less maintenance, you know, and that's there's um, definitely something to be said for that. You can have really beautiful flow trails, and I love riding those kinds of trails. But then I also like the challenge of maybe some steeper trails and some jump lines and things like that. And then also. Um, creation of public skill parks and so I've, i'm working with two uh two private landowners right now to try to get something like you know very mini version of what i what i helped create at doofy hill park you mm-hmm. know where you can have some drops and some jumps and some places for the kids to ride and i want it to be free for the public and just kind of an outlet like living here for me is really exciting i mean you know there's like there's surfing i can go and 
and I can drive a little bit in free dive. I can go to the Marine Reserve. I can do all these amazing things. But yeah. if you're just a kid who grew up, grows up here, you're like, yeah, it's, it's sunny and hot. And I don't have any. I don't have anything to do. You know. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so just realizing that, you know, one of our goals are actually the coffee shop I'm sitting in, in here, um, Dose Quarenta. Um, hey, let me use a private room here uh, to, to do this podcast with you and. I'm just looking outside at some of the land they have around here. And I've actually been speaking with the owners about making a pump track for kids here and um, that sort of thing. So I've just been, I've just been reaching out to community everywhere I go and speaking to people. And, and they've all been just like, you know, wonderful to talk to. You know, I don't have anything set in stone yet, but I've had amazing conversations and I'm super optimistic that it's going to lead to, to great things. And I do plan to be here. I do plan to, to, to spend half my year here mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. And so people can expect to be able to come down here and ride with me, do tours with me, do classes with me. Um, so we, we are creating zones for teaching the skills that we teach in other places. So you come down and do like maybe one week would be like a, you know, skills plus riding. Another one might just be like a ride tour of whole Southern Baja with a bunch of day trips, like some van trips, and then also a bunch of riding in this area. And also, obviously, there's just a lot of other things to do. There are two really prime surf spots uh, within 10 minutes of downtown and just tons of great beaches and really cool yoga studio. Um, so we might do some stuff that's combined with yoga and that sort of stuff. So we've got a, we've got a lot of opportunities here, a lot of options. I mean, it's interesting when my friends come down here to ride, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to hit some trails. I can't wait. I've been in the rain, you know, and they get down here and like on day four, I'm like, are you going to get your bike out of the box? <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, that biking thing. That's right. I forgot. You know, they're so taken with like the culture and the food and the people and the downtown and the beaches and, you know, the possibility of surfing or swimming or snorkeling or freediving or whatever that you it's quite easy to, to kind of forget about your bike for a couple of days. So I think a lot of our tours are going to be like, you know, like a good solid morning of riding or a good solid evening of riding. And then like a lot of just exploration of the area because it's just, it's unbelievably beautiful. I think one thing that a lot of people don't know about Baja is certainly something that I had no idea about was like, I, I imagine this big flat peninsula, like this big sandbox with an ocean on each side, you know, and it's crazy mountainous and lush and Todos Santos um, is basically like a palm oasis. Like when you go up in the hills above it and you look down, it's just palm trees. Um, so there's a lot of shade and a lot of palms. And from like you where, where you went, La Ventana, you might have noticed the cactus was so tall that you're actually riding in the shade. Yeah, you know? yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the time, I mean, the, the cactus forests exist, and so to me it was like right. That's what I was going to say. It's not what I expected. I expected this big flat landscape that was kind of lame, other than the beaches, you know. And and the opposite is true. I mean, the beaches are super super cool, and because of how narrow the peninsula is, it's just like all beaches. So the beaches are totally uncrowded, and then within that you have these really mountainous zones. I mean, I've I've never flown down here. I've only driven down here, and like parts of it are like driving through. Hawaii, you know, so it's, uh, hmm. it's, uh, it was really unexpected how, like, I'm looking out the window and it's green outside, you know, like, I did not expect, I did not expect that coming to this far south, you know. Yep, and depending where you are, I mean, the parts that, that I explored, it does look from a distance, you know, you see these peaks and it looks really rocky and, and desert-like, really dry, but then once you get onto the trails and you're kind of weaving in and out of these little canyons and, you know, there's oases, which, you know, is really cool to see like these, these spots where there is water like coming up, 
you know, to the ground level and you've got these palms growing and it's really lush, like in this one little area and you're kind of weaving in and out of those, like, yeah, that's just super cool. Really different, um, kind of writing. It, it is. Yeah. I'm going, actually, I've got a group of friends down here. Um, actually today they were, they've been in town a couple of days and I'm taking them to my favorite beach, which is Las Palmas beach. And it's like, you kind of have to know where it is because there's no signs to Las Palmas beach. And, mm-hmm. uh, you get there and it's so unexpected. It's just these, like this lush, like, like uh, there's like fresh water running down through, uh, like out of, out of springs. Like, and then you have palm trees growing and you, know, you walk down there and there's a freshwater river running into this ocean on this empty beach with wild horses running around. And it's just like, <laughs> wow. Oh my God, where am I? Like, this is <laughs> like, it is absolute craziness. Like it, it, the, the funny thing is too, Jeff, is that I, you know, I've spent, three months here last year. I've been here two months this year and I feel like a total newbie, <laughs> not just to the riding in the area, but even to, to town. Like I'm discovering new restaurants, new places for live music all the time. I mean, the coffee shop I'm sitting in right now, John Paul Jones, the basis for Led Zeppelin played, played here last year. Oh, wow. You know, I, I mean, they have bands coming from all like really famous bands coming and playing in coffee shops huh. in town. It's like, it's, it's such a cool place that people just want to come here. And that's actually why I chose to stay here. I mean, like I'd say that if you were just going one place just to ride your bike, like La Ventana is probably the best built out right now, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have the feeling of the Mexican town that this does. I think it's more kind of a strip along the beach, you know, and it's definitely a, mostly expats. Whereas you come here and you kind of get this, you know, the kind of historic kind of like brick buildings and, this sense of history and a sense of culture, um, and, and just a lot of like, you know, actual, like, you know, influence from locals. And, and I think it's, for, for me, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, be careful. You're about to blow up your spot and it's going to be overrun with mountain bikers and <laughs> not going to be the same. Yes. Wait, wait a minute. No, it totally sucks. Don't come here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Times have changed a little bit because, you know, we were going to do a tour in December, one in January, one in February. And so like that was our whole focus was getting ready for those. And then we kind of scuttled all that. We have one in March. We'll see if that goes or not. We're just, my main concern was actually not, I just didn't want to bring COVID down here to all to the local people because it's actually not that prevalent down here. And that was my main concern was just bringing in people with how rampant COVID is in the u.s you know um so my my plan now is to just further ingratiate myself with with the people of town with the landowners uh with the trail builders with the riders and so for me once again the the covid thing you know in, in its own strange you know twist of fate has been kind of a bit of a blessing um because now i'm forced to just take my time and rather than coming in here and trying to like capitalize on what they already have, I'm here to help grow what they have before I actually even bring people down. And so for me, it's been, it's been a really cool couple of months and I'm here through the end of April and I have other, other instructors teaching for me in Seattle in March, March and April. And I'll be back at the end of April to start teaching uh, there. And then I'm hoping to go back to the Alps again in August. That's the plan right now. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, yeah, being here has been wonderful. Uh, it's kind of a blank slate. You know, it's this small town. There's so much open space, not just on the beaches, but in the mountains around. Um, most of the people who own the land, whether they're private landowners, developers, or whomever, are totally cool with 
as long as you're responsible with what you're doing um, and you and get permission, they seem so far totally cool with the idea and excited about the idea of bringing mountain bikers here. And I think one of the fears of the locals here is that, that this could turn out like Cabo, you know, um, and Cabo is basically kind of like the Las, Las Vegas of, of Baja, you know, and yeah. um, it's not really that popular with, with, you know, the people who live here, obviously, because um, it ha- doesn't ha- always have the most positive influence and it doesn't always give the best reflection of, of who Americans can be or who, ex- you know, people from other countries can be. And so I'm excited to kind of make sure that this, to help in any way that I can, that this turns into more of like a, an outdoor enthusiast area, you know, for surfers, for mountain bikers, for things like that. And obviously that, you know, there is some cost there to the, to, to the, just the general Mexican culture. And I'm, I'm aware of that, but at the same time, it, to me, it seems much more positive than what could happen by being so close to Cabo with the influence of people coming up this way and, and trying to turn it more into a Cabo type, you know, like party zone or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's still a quiet town. Like it's, I mean, like, you know, you get people blaring the stereos on main street, um, that sort of thing every once in a while, but it's, you know, yeah, it'll get busy with like some tourists for an hour and then all of a sudden it's just like totally empty again. And, um, it's just a small town and it's just a small, you know, beautiful Mexican town. I'm totally, totally in love with this town. I've never actually felt this at home anywhere in my life. Hmm. Wow. That's cool. It's powerful endorsement. Yes. What are your plans for fluid ride for 2021? Plans are, you know, we've got a lot of new instructors and they've been doing really well. Most of them were with us in 2020. So uh, keeping them going with their private instruction, having them take over some of my group instruction um, when I'm out of town in March and April. So um, they've got that responsibility on their shoulders and they've been rising to the occasion and doing a great job. So some of it is kind of growth in that direction um, with the help of Linnea Rook, who's our COO. Um, She's just helped us manage the business in a way that I've never been able to. I mean, she runs the business so much better than I was ever, ever able to. Um, so we're able to expand so rapid, you know, so much more rapidly. We're really excited about the online school. So that's a really big push for us. We're working really hard on that right now. And we both work crazy long hours. Um, uh, so that, that's one thing, helping her with her practice like a pro, helping her, which is her you know, series of episodes that, that's um, on both on YouTube and on uh, Fluid Ride Online, helping her achieve her goals there with her riding and her racing. So that's one of, that's one of my goals for sure. And then having fun and also getting back to Europe. I really hope I can go back to the French Alps this year because I really, really missed it last year. So, um, so yeah, there's really the goal is just to continue doing what we do. Uh, to create more of a year-round outlet for it by having uh, this zone down here. I mean, one of the cool things about this particular location, particularly for our West Coast clients, is that it's a direct flight. I mean, from Seattle, it's about a three-and-a-half, four-hour four hour flight, $35 to fly your bicycle down. Mm, wow. You know, and then it's a one-hour one drive. You know, and we're going to do airport pickups and, like, really just jump on a plane and, you know, and once COVID's more chill, like, jump on a plane and, Three and a half hours later, you're transported to a totally different place with great mountain biking, great beaches, and the, the best food I've ever eaten in my life. I mean, it's not it's not what you think of when you think of Mexican food. You just have to come down and experience it. It's it's uh, really amazing cuisine here, and fruits and vegetables will never taste the same anywhere else you go <laughs> after coming back from here. So, 
that's one of the coolest things for me is that kind of the, the vision is kind of like being able to have fluid ride operate a little bit more year round by having a place where you, you have pretty much just guaranteed good weather. And the weather here is, is phenomenal. It's a cold season right now. And like the highs are like, you know, 79, 80 degrees. And so December and January, that's kind of like how it is. And it cools down at night. Um, November's a little bit, a little bit warmer. Um, so I'm here in November, December, January, and then February, March, and April, and then starts to warm up again end of February into March. And, it's a little toastier in April, but uh, it's it, it almost never rains here, and the trails aren't really dusty. Like you can follow right behind somebody, and you're not getting dusted. So it's really this unique opportunity to kind of give people a really great experience. Pretty much guaranteed sunshine, and guaranteed single track, and guaranteed time on the beach, um, and all really very very surprisingly accessible um, one of the cool things too is for a lot of people is uh, a lot of people have the alaska airlines credit cards and have you know the frequent flyer miles and with those it's you know 80 bucks to fly a round trip even if you buy your ticket it's pretty easy to get a, a, a ticket you know 200 dollars each way and then 35 bucks for your bike so it's it's accessible it's affordable it's affordable once you're downhill here it's our least expensive tour um, that we offer um, it's also our least advanced tour. Like we have the opportunity here to teach riders who are fairly new to riding, whereas in the French Alps, you need to have quite a bit of experience to go on those trips. So it, it also provides that kind of gateway to people being able to go on a tour, kind of understand what, it, what it's about, and maybe prepare themselves for some of our more advanced tours as well. So, yeah, just a whole variety of things um, and reasons that I'm down here. Um, I also just love the sunshine. I'm originally from South Africa, so I think in my genes somewhere was just kind of like, you know, find the sun, find the sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That all sounds amazing right now, especially for so many reasons. Yeah, I think we're all we're all due for a Baja vacation. Absolutely. Well, come join me, man. I'd love to have you down. Yeah, thanks. Well, Simon, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and catch us up on what's going on and to talk a little bit about mountain bike skills. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I look forward to next time. Great talking to you. Well, you can learn more about Fluid Ride at fluidrideonline.com, and we'll have that link for you in the show notes as well. That's all I've got this week. I'll talk to you again next week.